What a great morning to be together as a church, to serve a God who loves us so. I'm excited about our new sermon series starting here this summer, Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be studying. I've been reading it and rereading it. I've been reading about it. And I think that Jesus says here in this amazing sermon will change us. It's going to challenge us. And we know that all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is equally inspired and inerrant. From the first word in Genesis to the last word in Revelation. From an obscure verse in Zechariah to the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3.16. The whole Bible, every part of the Bible, is God's inspired, inerrant word. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.20 and 21 tells us how God breathed out his word to us. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Who gave us the Bible? The Holy Spirit gave us our Bible. He superintended the writings of the scriptures so that what was written wasn't produced by the will of man, but was produced by God speaking through the authors as they were carried along, driven by the Holy Spirit. Our Bible does not contain the word of God. Our Bible does not become the word of God to us as we read it and apply it to our lives. These are false, even Heretical views. Our Bible is the word of God. It is God's will. It is God's word. It is God's plan given to us. Propositional, objective, absolute truth. So when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, I want to stress that these are the very exact Words that Jesus said. This is the very teaching that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, proclaimed. This is not some summary. This is not some made-up concoction of the early church. What we read, what we study in the Sermon on the Mount are the very exact words. Jesus spoke that day on that mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Christ's instruction on what it means to be a true follower of his. If you had to answer the question, what does Jesus think a true follower of his should look like? What does Jesus teach are the character qualities, the actions, the motivation that should mark a true follower of Christ? From Jesus' own words, what does he expect from his followers? One of the best places to answer those questions is the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see over the next many weeks that what Jesus expects his followers to look like. Now, so often in our Christian culture, we decide, we think it's up to us to decide what a true follower of Christ should look like. You know, there's certain clothes to wear, there's 
certain Bible to use. There are certain activities that you better not do. There's certain words you have to use. And there's certain things that you better do. We have this list. And if you meet this exterior, superficial standards, then you're a good Christian. That kind of externalism is nothing new. It was rampant in Jesus' day as it is in ours. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount in part to specifically condemn that kind of thinking. He is the King. He is the Lord. He alone is the one who gets to set the standard of his followers. One of the key verses in the Sermon on the Mount is also one of the most radical verses in all the Bible. When Jesus said these words, it was like throwing a spiritual bomb that exploded on the mountaintop. Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, were the very picture of righteousness. No one was more righteous than them. It's hard for us to even understand how in their culture, in Jesus' day, how these leaders were esteemed. It's the epitome of what it meant to be righteous. They met and often even exceeded every external, superficial standard. It was impossible. Impossible. To look more like a true follower of God than the scribes and Pharisees looked. And then Jesus drops that spiritual bomb. Jesus says to his disciples that a true follower of mine, their righteousness must exceed the most righteous people that they knew. Why? Because what they saw as righteousness, what we often see as righteousness, isn't the same thing that Jesus sees as righteousness. And take one guess on who's right and who's wrong. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The Sermon on the Mount is a sentence-by-sentence condemnation of external, superficial righteousness and an explanation, a description of the kind of righteousness that Jesus really expects from his followers. Through the sermon, Jesus compares and contrasts what a true follower of his looks like as opposed to an external, not true follower. Folks, here's one of the fundamental truths of the Sermon on the Mount. A follower of Christ is radically different, radically different than those who do not follow Christ. Not just in our actions, but from our heart. This is important. Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is not about how you become a follower. Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is about how people who are already followers, already disciples, how we should live. The sermon is addressed to disciples. Over and over again, as Jesus details what his followers should look like, we'll be confronted with the fact, this overwhelming fact, I can't do that. I can't do that. We can't do it in our own power, in our own external energy, by our own gumption, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can't do it. We can't keep the law of Christ. 
The only hope of gaining to any measure of obedience is only by dependence on him. We can't, but he can. And he wants us to please him by becoming what only he can do in us. The Sermon on the Mount hammers home the truth that we can't, but he can. The sermon is not a new law to follow. It's not just some list of actions that we must do. The sermon drives us to grace, to the grace of our Jesus. It goes from the external and into our hearts. We are not under law. We are under grace. But that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have expectations of his followers. See, sometimes nowadays there's this great trend to overstress grace in our cultural context. And in the process of overstressing the wonderful beauty of God's grace, we tend to press down to understress that God actually does have expectations of his followers. But there's no battle between God's expectation and God's grace. There's no battle there. Both are perfectly balanced in God. Without his grace... We could never grow in meeting his expectations. And without his expectations, we would never know the depths of his grace. There's balance. See, without his grace, we could never grow in meeting his expectations. And without his expectations, we would never know the depths of the beauty and the riches of God's grace. Folks, God's grace is real. I know how we depend upon it. And folks, God's expectations of us are real. And oh, how God's grace leads us to follow. John MacArthur in his commentary said, Here begins what has traditionally been called the Sermon on the Mount. Though Jesus repeated many of these truths on other occasions, chapter 5 through 7 record one continuous message of the Lord delivered at one specific time. As we shall see, these revolutionary truths to the minds of those Jewish religionists who heard them and, and, have con- and would have continued to explode with great impact on the minds of readers for nearly 2,000 years. Here is the manifesto of the new monarch who ushers in a new age with a new message. The Sermon on the Mount is revolutionary, explosive truths. A manifesto, a a new message from Jesus, our Lord and King. How are we to understand Jesus' teachings of the the idea of the kingdom there in the Sermon on the Mount? I think theologian D.A. Carson put it well when he said, There's an already aspect of the kingdom and a not yet aspect of the kingdom. The kingdom has already come, but it has not yet arrived. Christ reigns today and over a spiritual kingdom. He will one day reign over a physical kingdom on earth called the millennium. Christ reigns today already spiritually as king. He will one day come back after the tribulation period and establish a literal 1,000 year millennial kingdom. The king has come and the king is coming. The Jews of Jesus' day were so focused on Messiah coming to reign and establish a physical kingdom that they misunderstood his first coming to create a spiritual kingdom. Even the disciples, even after the resurrection, are still struggling putting things together. In Acts 1.6, just moments before Christ ascends into heaven, 
The disciples asked him. So when they gathered together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still thinking mainly about the physical reign of the Messiah on earth. They were still anticipating the fulfillment of the hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about the time when the Messiah would reign over a literal, physical kingdom. That time is coming. Jesus answered the disciples in in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Basically, he said, it's coming. It's going to happen exactly when God the Father has planned it. The sermon by Jesus marks out what a true follower of his looks like now with Christ reigning over a spiritual kingdom and what a true follower of Christ will look like then when Christ reigns on earth in the physical millennial kingdom. We are in the already aspects of Christ's reign, but the not yet aspects are still to come. The king has come and the king is coming. I had the privilege back in 2000 to go to Israel supporting my senior pastor on a trip he took there. I've stood at the traditional site where Jesus spoke this sermon called the Mount of Beatitudes. Here's a picture uh, looking down from the top of the Mount of Beatitudes in Israel down to the Sea of Galilee. These words that are about to be read for us are the actual words of Christ that he spoke on a hillside to his disciples in Israel. We're going to be slowly going through the Sermon on the Mount over the next many weeks. Uh, We're going to be looking at each tree, so to speak, So today, I want us to look at the forest. Today, I want us to be just like one of those disciples on that hill and just sit and listen to the preaching of Jesus. The Apostle Paul challenged uh, Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. He said to him, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Today, we're going to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. So I've asked Jeff and Larry and Luke to read the Sermon on the Mount to us. Each one is going to read a chapter. If you want to take out your Bibles and follow along, please feel free to turn to Matthew chapter 5. But perhaps, perhaps you just want to listen. Perhaps you just want to sit and listen as the disciples did when they heard Jesus speak this sermon on that hill. <clears throat> Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecute for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to, in all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So you are offering your gift at the altar. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if you are altering your gift at the altar, uh, apologize. <laughs> so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser has, uh, hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath on your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you simply say be let, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do, you, don't, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before the other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But you, when give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to be stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in your is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valued than they? And which of you will, being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, tell you, 
Even Solomon, all his glory was not arrayed like the ones of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you not be judged. For with judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, you may say, you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What a powerful sermon that our Jesus gave on that day. What a great time we're going to have studying this. I want to challenge each of you to read the Sermon on the Mount on your own. You saw how just those few moments it would take to read it and to study it, to to glean from it the teaching of Jesus in your life. You will be amazed. You would be thrilled to see how God will use his word in your life. Before we go into our communion service this morning, I want to challenge you with those concluding words of chapter 7. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one who has authority. Are you willing this morning to say to Jesus, Jesus, your teaching has authority in my life. Are you willing to commit to follow to these words that were just read? Will you say to Jesus, What you say is my Lord and Savior is what I will humbly submit to as the expectations of my life. No more external. No more superficial. I want to be the real deal. I want to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. It's only through Christ, through his grace, through his salvation that he purchased for us. Through his death and his shed blood on the cross. That gives us life and hope and eternal life. And then through that salvation, gives us the ability and the goal to live a life that pleases him. That marks us out as a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word. We thank you for so much that it's that these are the very words of Jesus spoken on that hill all those years ago. Now for us, for us, to challenge us and to teach us, they're as alive and as powerful today as ever, and we thank you for that. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for providing for us an inspired and errant word. We can trustworthily know the truth of our God. We pray now to you, Jesus, so thankful for this communion time. So thankful for the sacrifice 
for all that you've done for us, to give us new life, taking our sins, taking on God's wrath, dying in our place, offering us forgiveness, and then we in response, in faith and trust, put our lives, our futures, our present, our hope in you. We thank you. Challenge us now in Jesus' name. Amen.